this morning if you're able to do so. Um, obviously, it's your choice. Whenever, but whenever uh, anyone asks, hey, would you do this or that or the other thing? Obviously, you have free will. You have choice, right? Um, but if you want to play along and experience that, that aspect of being together, uh, you know, consider, at least consider it. We're going to read this morning from one of the four texts for this Easter Sunday in the liturgical calendar, and this is from Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. Now, in the past, I've normally preached one of the gospel texts around the resurrection, but you'll see very quickly here why this text is also one of the readings, because it also relays the story as well. Uh, And so I'm going to invite you, actually, would you read with me out loud, if you're comfortable doing so? It's uh, an NET on the screen, Charmaine, yes? Okay, all right, so I'm reading the same thing. Great. So join with me. Let's, let's say this text out loud together, read it together, and then we're going to walk through this, um, uh, this Easter Sunday. Then Peter, say it with me, started speaking. I now truly understand that God does not show favoritism in dealing with people, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is welcome before him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John announced. With respect to Jesus from Nazareth, that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us, the witnesses God had already chosen, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to warn them that he is the one appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. About him, all the prophets testify that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Lord, we thank you for this day we have to gather. We thank you that on this Easter 2020, we join with Christians across the world, in particularly remembering this story that also reaches into our time and our moment by the work of your spirit. And Lord, that this is a continuing story and we are part of it. We have responded either by curiosity or by giving ourselves over in allegiance to your teachings and your love, Lord, or by rejecting it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to move in our midst as we join in the tradition and become part of that living stream this day in your name. Amen. Hey, would you be seated this morning if you would like to? I say that in our context, and I'm pretty sure nobody's ever decided, no, I'm going to stand the whole service. I'd, I'd, I'd actually like to see that sometimes. Okay. <laughs> um, in the church I became a Christian, sometimes people did jump up, by the way, during the sermon and would uh, shout. So it's a little, little different. We're a little more chill here in, uh, in Baptist land here in Canada, right? Um, Easter, Pascha, meaning Passover, um, the eighth day of the new creation, Resurrection Sunday, all words we use to talk about this day. As we already mentioned, the Paschal greeting, and again, that word just goes back to Pascha, which connects with Passover, um, is again, Christ is risen. Let's practice together. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. One more time, Christ is risen. He is risen 
I could talk about why I geek out about the uh, truly he is risen, but I'll resist that urge today. But alethos, anesti, uh, truly he is risen. But yes, indeed. This day, this day we specifically declare the story of Jesus. And we lean into the eighth day of the new creation. The ancient church, the early church, talked about this being there's seven days of creation in Genesis But in this, Jesus is recreating the brokenness and redeeming and recycling all things, which one day he will do fully when he comes again at the end of this time as we know it. We remember that humanity is in bondage today. We remember, though, that there is hope, and we renew our allegiance to the Lord of all on this day. There's one author that said this, and I'm using my screen for the first time because of my uh, craziness with my paper notes last Sunday. So I'm converting on Easter Sunday to moving away from paper. One, uh, one author said this, what Jesus teaches, what Jesus teaches convinces me of who Jesus is. And once I accept who Jesus is, well, then his resurrection begins to make perfect sense. That for many of us, coming to belief in the resurrection starts with wrestling with Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, what he talks about living in a different way of being human, that this is compelling. Another theologian, Paul Eddy, said this. He said, for Christians, Jesus' death and resurrection, which non-Christians usually deny, are nothing less than the centerpieces of world history. Here lies the key to all of God's dealings with humanity. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, God freed us from the tyranny of evil and reconciled us to himself. A relationship with God and our eternal destiny depend on what Jesus did when he died and rose again. And in all of this, all Christians have always agreed. The story of Jesus is the center of Christianity. Sometimes people in wrestling with faith says, well, which Christianity? Well, all little old Orthodox Christians have some things absolutely in common across all the secondary and third level issues, and they all boil down to this one person revealing him as God and Messiah in Jesus the Christ. I like how talking about the text we're about to just spend a few moments on, uh, Adam Braun says this, Jesus in Luke and Acts was full of the Holy Spirit. Remember, as we've gone through this series during the Lenten season in Luke chapter 3 and 4, Jesus' baptism, the presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus being conceived, the presence of the Holy Spirit, him being sent into ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit in Luke 4. And now in Acts 10, again, we see this, the work of the Spirit as the resurrection of Jesus and the launching of the church begins to continue the work that the resurrection has power and impact after he ascends into heaven and continues by the work of the Spirit. It says, Jesus traveled around and doing good, healing everyone who's oppressed. And in Acts, all believers, we're told, have access to the Holy Spirit, which calls all of us towards God's righteousness, peace, and joy, and justice. And so we see this us moving the church forward this morning. This passage that we read today in Acts chapter 10 is fascinating because it's the church expanding beyond Israel into the rest of the known world. And here we have the story of Cornelius. Cornelius, who was not a a Jew, who was a Gentile, but was searching after God as best as he knew how and and was considered a God-fearer. And he is curious. He has a vision that someone is going to come to you with the message of Jesus, the story of Jesus. He says, and and Peter is the one who is being sent. And Peter also has a vision that God is expanding the kingdom beyond the boundaries of ancient Israel. But the mission of ancient Israel is being fulfilled in Jesus, Messiah, to bring God's new way of being human to all people everywhere. 
And so we come to the story this morning with just a snippet in the middle where we see this preaching that Peter gives as he encounters Cornelius and Cornelius' family and those around. This Sunday, I just want to share a few reviews here really quickly about what happens in the cross. There's a couple different views of what Jesus did in the cross, and Peter hints at some of these in his sermon here and throughout the book of Acts. Luke relays these as well. There are many biblical images of what happened on the cross on Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then today with the resurrection. And sometimes the church gets hung up on just one of these. And keep in mind, these are, these are uh, attempts to express what God did in Jesus and the cross for the world. And it's not just one of them. And, and they don't do justice to the fullness, which we won't fully get, I don't think, until the life of the world to come. But there are three main ones that we hear, and Fleming Rutledge uh, has used these, Christus Victor, this idea of Jesus as the victor, identifying with conquering over demonic powers. So one of the views of what Jesus does for you is that he frees you from being enslaved to this power or this force of sin and also this force of wrathful violence. That what Jesus does on the cross in some way he absorbs and defeats from all time. This idea of the powers that are allied against us. That something went wrong, went awry in creation. The misuse of freedom of spiritual beings and others that put us in captivity. Another view is on the cross sacrifice. Jesus identified as an unblemished offering for sin based on the old sacrificial system. And that Jesus deals with this as well. And of course, the debates range between, well, what, who is receiving the sacrifice? Is God receiving the sacrifice or is this sacrifice uh, the consequence of sin? Uh, so there's some debate on how he stands in the place and becomes a sacrifice. And which leads to the third one, substitution, that Jesus identifies as the judge and the judged in our place. I like how Fleming Rutledge will summarize these two things and just hang with me and then we'll talk through the text quick. Basically, two views. I like how she does this, and I've shared this before. Number one, in the cross, we see God's definite action in making vicarious atonement for sin. The cross is understood as sacrifice, sin offering, guilt offering, expiation, blotting out, removal of sin, and substitution in some way. Uh, many of us debate on the, whether it's penal substitution or some other kind of substitution because you can see uh, certainly arguments along the line on that. I tend to be one that goes away from the penal one because that can be like dumbed down to where it's like God is mad at God pouring out God's wrath on God's kid, and that's all messed up and not biblical in a lot of ways. So we have to be careful about that. Well, it's slightly biblical, but not really once you get into the bigger picture. But I like how she says one view of the cross, that the cross can come down to two basic views, God's definite action in making vicarious atonement for sin. In Christ, God is dealing with our brokenness. God is dealing with our, our, our addictions. God is dealing with all of the things that enslave us as individuals and socially as well. The second thing that she says God does in the cross is it's God's decisive victory over the alien powers of sin and death, which I already spoke about a little bit here. The alien powers of sin and death. There is something in the Bible that reveals that this world is not neutral. Say it with me. It's not neutral. Oliver, say it with me. It's not neutral. It's not neutral. <laughs> it's not neutral. And there was something that went awry in that God's risk for love created the conditions where other things could happen. The nothingness, the destructiveness could take form and shape. And we are participating in that by default often in the nothingness, the destructive powers that destroy the creatures of God, including us. 
But in Jesus, we are released from being enslaved to that. We can choose now to live differently. We don't have to be enslaved by the powers of violence and wrath and sin as a force that's acting upon us. Jesus takes it on in the cross and exposes it and dethrones it. There is a new exodus. In fact, Saturday in much of the tradition of the church is when Jesus harrows hell. He goes down and announces that they are no longer captive to the powers of wrath and sin and death, that these are foreign alien powers of nothingness taking shape, but in Jesus, he has absorbed them, taking them on, and he has killed death itself, his power over sin and death and wrath. So again, two important points, atonement for sin and deliverance from sin is an alien power. He deals with it with our own actions and our own destructiveness, and also deliverance from sin and wrath and death acting on us externally as individuals and as a people. Leanne Van Dyke says this, they seek to express in limited analogical language the reality of God's decisive act on behalf of a broken world. So let's move ahead here this morning. I like this one more quote from Fleming Rutledge. In all religion, it is only the story of the crucified God that can stand up to the challenge of the long history of human wickedness. Christianity, the Jesus way, is unique. The unalloyed proclamation of Scripture is that the death and resurrection of Christ is the hinge of history. Say it with me. It's the hinge. It's the hinge of history. It is the unique old world overturning and new world constituting creating event that calls every human project in question, including and especially our religious one. This irreligious nature of what happens here. So let's just look quickly at the text as we move to the last half of the message today. Are you still with me? Amen? Amen. Yes, you're alive. Look at your neighbor. Say, uh, you know, just give them a nod, a wink, you know, let them know that it's going to be okay. All right. Christ is risen. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So let's look at these verses, just 34 through 35 for a moment. This passage where Peter now is responding to the Holy Spirit through visions bringing Peter and Cornelius together begins with this phrase, Peter opened his mouth, which is this solemn phrase to introduce a speech. And this is interesting in Acts, two, uh, in Acts chapter 2 as well, when Peter, who had denied Jesus, who was the first deconstructed disciple and is reconstituting his faith because things have shifted dramatically, he begins to this, this speech in Acts chapter 2 with the phrase, then Peter stood up, where Peter had before slunked away or slinked away. Slunk away? Slink, slunk even a word? I don't even know. He stood up. And now we have this sort of signal language again. Peter opened his mouth, indicating that there's something important that's about to happen that's changing the environment, the atmosphere. The audience in Cornelius' house would have, been would, have been, uh, would have been interesting because he was a unique type of Gentile in that he was seeking God outside of Judaism but was wrestling with the scriptures. And somehow the spirit had been working on Cornelius. And so Peter was able to use some of the Jewish prophets to also in his speech to the house. And he uses this phrase right off the get-go. He says, God does not show favoritism. Oh, that's marvelous good news. Because we tend to be people who pick our favorites. In fact, one of the fallenness of humanity, the anti-justice, anti-love things is based on favoritism. Who is in my set of boundaries? 
Are they as conservative as I? Are they as moderate as I? Are they as progressive as I? Who's in my boundary set? Who's in and who's out? Who do I show favoritism to? Who do I not show favoritism to? And we could go on and on and on. Do I only show favoritism to those that are within my tribe or my kinship group? Do I only show favoritism to those that are in the same social economic status as I am? Do I only show favoritism to those who speak this language or that language? Do I only show favoritism to those who fit within a certain Canadian ethos, by the way? Well, no, that's a whole other story. I was just going to say, by the way, those of you who know I'm an immigrant, I always say that all the time, and some of you, like, snarl at me now. Thank you for doing that. Um, <laughs> but I am approved to take the test to become a citizen. I learned this week, so that's something, right? All right. But you know what? My identity isn't that. I'm a binational immigrant. I'm a mutt. God is not a respecter of persons. God is one that does not show partiality. I like how one translation puts it, I realize that God does not show favoritism in dealing with people. And this idea, again, is that he is not a respecter of persons, that Peter is preaching that one of the things that the cross, the resurrection reveals, and now the sending of the Spirit that is happening and compelling Cornelius through visions and dreams to decide to follow Jesus as Messiah, that God is reaching all the time, everywhere to everyone. This is part of the radical message of Christianity. It went everywhere from the day one, day go, that it is calling us and drawing us. And I think it's so important these days, especially in North America, where we hear all kinds of fabrications and people that either are claiming Christianity and make it some horrible version, or people that are rejecting Christianity. When we look back at how this thing is formed, it's all about Jesus and the work of the Spirit calling us to be people centered in the radical love displayed in Christ. And it changes us how we are human. It celebrates the unique pieces of us, but calls us also into unity with others. I like how Yaroslav Pelikan talks about this, the unity and equality of all humanity before God. Well, let me move on a little bit here. This is a theme in Acts. God is calling us together. And Paul in chapter 17 says, we are all God's offsprings, quoting one of the ancient Greek prophets, or Greek uh, poets, rather. In the Nicene Creed that we read this morning, it says, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of all things, all things seen and unseen. Say it with me, all things. things. Earlier in chapter 10, Peter receives this vision. It says this, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. God is not a respecter of persons. This is so important. So let me move on in this text here today. Verses 36 through 38, the speech jumps into full sway here, and Peter begins to preach here in this, this section, and he does what is sort of the classic message of the gospel called the kirgma, and he begins to unpack it again, and he says, you know the message he sent to the people proclaiming good news that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. This speech is unique among the speeches in Acts because it pays some attention to Jesus' earthly life instead of only the, res- only the cross and the resurrection. And Peter starts in verses 36 through 42 and gives this message, and he says this. He's quoting from both Psalm 107 in the Old Testament and also Isaiah 52, and talking about this idea of good news to all people going forth. He says in, in Isaiah, there's this, this word that says how beautiful it is to see those approaching over the mountains, the feet of a messenger who brings good news, a messenger who brings good news, who announces deliverance, who says to Zion, your God reigns. 
He's saying that this peace of Jesus is a full sense of salvation. It is freedom from the powers within and the powers that are acting upon us. It is empowerment to live differently, liberated to live in a new way. And then he goes on and says in this text as well, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Ooh, I love that. Luke in Luke and Acts talks about the work of the Spirit. And I want to let you in on a little secret. This might be new to you this morning. The resurrection of Jesus did not launch the church. Those of you that have heard this, you know that. It wasn't the resurrection that convinced them. It was the resurrection power released by the work of the Holy Spirit making Jesus real because Jesus had ascended into heaven and they waited until they experienced the living Jesus by the work of the Spirit. And that Spirit is how we experience Jesus right now in this room, in our lives. It is the work of the Holy Spirit right now to make Jesus real. The Holy Spirit will impress upon your mind, your heart, your wrestling, your intellectual wrestling, or your experience play, uh, being caught up into that one way or the other, the realness of Christ. And Cornelius is already convinced that this is the one true story coming from outside of Judaism, coming from outside of all that sort of mix of things. And something is at work there. It is the Spirit of God drawing and wooing him. And so Peter preaches, he said, God anointed him with the Spirit and he anointed him to do what? To do good and to set people free. To set people free from bounded ways of thinking and bounded ways of being. To set people free from seeing their core identity within their kinship circle or their economic class or, or their education or whatever. Sets them free from that and to get their new identity in God's love for them. And he went around doing good around all who saw him. It is the Holy Spirit that makes Jesus real. In fact, in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says this, If the same Spirit which raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you, He will also quicken your mortal bodies, talking about the new life to come, but also right now, a twofold kind of application now and the life to come. That that power is here in this room. That the power of the Holy Spirit to convince you and draw you to Jesus is at work. That if you begin to hear something or you begin to sense something, it's not simply an emotional reaction, but there might be more going on. Press into it, lean into it, and ask if that emotion or that intellectual argument is drawing you into something deeper. People become Christians in many different ways, but it is the work of the Spirit in our mind, our intellect, and our imagination that draws us. Now, the last little verse here, this Easter, verse 39 through 41, almost the end, the witnesses. Peter in his sermon goes on and talks about what happened in Judea and Galilee. He talks about things that could be verified. He talks about things that there were actual eyewitnesses to. And you know what happened with respect to Jesus. God anointed him with power. And then verse 39, we are witnesses of these things. Peter was an eyewitness to these things. Luke is relaying this. Peter is an eyewitness to these things. And they killed him by hanging him on a tree. But that was not the end of the story. I want to pause and say this about verse 39 and the killing of Jesus on the tree. In some ways, we all participated in that killing of Christ. In some ways, God is absorbing all the consequences of sin and brokenness and anti-love and forces that divide and destroy forward and backward in time and bringing them to a focal point in the crucifixion of Jesus. The powers, the powers that are on the outside binding us and trying to keep us in a limited way of thinking about the brokenness of the world, the powers of sin and death and wrath 
are also called to the cross as well. And he draws them, he lures them for their destruction. And so here, this place, in this verse, we are told they killed him by hanging him on a tree. In some ways, Jesus accomplishes, well, I I love the Narnia quote. I've avoided trying to say it for like a year. But if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis gives an allegory about about Jesus and, and, and Christianity and Christ. And the evil witch tries to bind the Aslan uh, figure, the lion who is also an an analogous to Jesus in the story. And she brings about his death and he is killed, he is murdered. But he comes alive again. And she's, what's going on? The deep magic says that someone must die in place because of the, the sinful brokenness choice. And he says something like this to the effect of the witch that she did not know or you do not know the deeper and older magic. And the deeper and older magic is that death is undone by death, by one who is without sin, by one who has, uh, it, it personifies all that is God and God's love, and that is Jesus. And he cannot be kept down because love cannot be killed. It rises again. And in this case, God literally, physically, personally can be known. Okay, last verses, and then we'll land it. Everybody said amen? Christ is risen. Oh, come on, you can do, well, you know, that's so pastoral cliche, but here I go. You can do a little better than that. Christ is risen. (laughs) Amen, amen. Jesus, thank you for your rising again. And thank you for pastors who get all cliche on Easter. All right. Finally, he commanded us to preach, Peter says, to all the people and to warn them that he is the one appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Why do we say things like the Nicene Creed? Nicene Creed is a nice summation of a lot of what this thing is all about. Could say more about the life of Jesus. Those of us who are Anabaptists want more of that. But it says this, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. This comes right out of scripture. And so he commands him to preach everywhere that he is the judge of the living and the dead, and about Jesus all the prophets testify, and everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins. There are many ways to cross over the line into faith this morning. There are many ways to become a believer. There are intellectual understanding what is the nature of play and art, philosophy, aesthetics. I think there's an emotional place. It's not wrong for us to let our emotions draw us into uh, the experience of God through awe and wonder and beauty. As long as we're aware of that when we're singing or doing things here, we know that we're doing something intentionally as long as we're honest and aware of that and not trying to hide anything or whatever. Some of us come to faith because we experienced a good deed done in Jesus' name. I think for me, my journey to faith was probably a combination of some of those things. My parents had been through a messy divorce when I was a child. My mother was sent on a faith journey, trying to find meaning in her life. I vaguely remember some of this. I was pretty young at the time, but I remember she went into a very progressive church, and then she went into a very conservative church, and eventually she landed, I think, somewhere between the two. She went from UCC, which in the States is like Uniting Church. Oh, we're going to have to edit this out later. Thanks, Harry. Uh, and then... <laughs> And then she went into like a Southern Baptist church, and then she ended up in something like it's a weird blend of, of uh, progressivism and conservatism in a Pentecostal church, although the Pentecostal church would never use that language. Uh, but, and she became a Christian there. But also during that time, she 
lost a bunch of her income because my parents split and they were just out of uh, an RN degree thing, a two-year thing in, in this, the grand old state of South Dakota and was thrust into sort of a forced poverty. Income halved, full-time with kids, doing all of that. And I could tell stories and stories and stories about that. To this day, I still have a problem with thrift stores, but that's a whole other thing. I'll work through that trauma one of these days when I'm old enough to handle it. Um, <laughs> but uh, she was in a working in a position where she worked night hours because she was a young nurse and she had to take the crap hours. We're going to have to edit this sermon even more. Sorry. Uh, and a job came up to work for the Catholic nuns in the monastery, or it used to be called a, a, a convent back in the day, for these nuns. And we experienced firsthand the goodness of God through this church, through the Catholic church, blessing my mother with a job with normal hours so she could spend more time with her children out of her fresh divorce and all the craziness of that. Some of us become believers because we experience the good deeds. He went around preaching good news and doing good deeds. So between the feisty, crazy evangelicalism of my Pentecostal background, between experiences of good deeds of those that served a family going through deep brokenness in an incredibly conservative culture, by the way, uh, and so you can imagine the layers of stigma even growing up in that place, even in the 80s and 90s. And experiencing the spirit of God within the community of faith and the worship of that church. Hearing the stories of people how they encountered the living Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm here today because of those good works, preaching the gospel of the good news and the power of the Holy Spirit. And thankfully, other witnesses along the way that opened space in their lives, some of my relatives that were authentic believers, some of people throughout my church experience. So I don't know about you this morning. Cornelius had a vision. Peter had a vision to go. But maybe this is your day to take another step with Jesus. Maybe this is your Sunday, this Easter 2022, to say yes or to renew your life with him. And here's the thing about following Jesus. It shifts throughout the course of our life. It looks different. And for some of you, you need to let go of some stuff that was attached to the church in Jesus that really doesn't have anything to do with it. Or it was okay for that season, but that season is over. And maybe this Easter is a time to embrace, again, a Jesus-centered, a new way of living into this gospel, this good news. Is this your Sunday? I don't know. But I want to make space for it. So finally, everyone who believes in Jesus can receive forgiveness of their sins, release from the things that bind us, empowerment to live differently. And why don't you stand with me this morning as we get ready to land this plane? Peter is preaching to Cornelius. And here's the interesting thing. The Holy Spirit is, whom, is what is the part of God, the person of God that makes Jesus real until Jesus comes again one day as he promises he will. And it says this, while Peter was still speaking these words, while Peter was still trying to land the plane, the Holy Spirit whoo, descended upon them. And there was something that happened physically in the midst that convinced Peter, this Jewish follower of Jesus, that now God is doing this thing for everyone everywhere. He had just preached it, 
But now he needed to practice what he preached because God just ended his sermon for him. And they encountered the living Christ through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So this Easter Sunday, I remind you of this. If you are a believer, there are many ways into the kingdom. Jesus said there are many, many that are outside that he is calling. And ultimately, there is something about having a living encounter with Christ through the power of the Spirit that draws. And my prayer for this church as we go into this summer season, the next season after Easter, ordinary time, Eastertide, Pentecost, all the things, is that we are a church that makes space for people wrestling, whether they're intellectual questioning, whether it's the church not being like the church and the church through repentance drawing them back or drawing them in, or whether it's through these direct encounters with the Holy Spirit or works and good works. These are how people enter and experience the living Christ. And some of you have these stories. You need to learn to share those stories. And some of you are here today because God is wooing you and drawing you and so as we prepare to leave, I'm going to invite our worship team to come up. And we have a prayer of, it's just a tool, but it's a prayer that we can use to begin to take our first steps with Jesus. And we say it every couple times throughout the year to remind ourselves of what does it mean to begin to follow Jesus. So we're going to put this prayer on the screen. It's called the, we call it an allegiance prayer. In the old days, we had sort of these, uh, you prayed that and you are calling on the name of Jesus, you are beginning a journey with him. Please speak with me, speak with Andres, speak with one of our elders. We'd love to be able to help connect you and take the next steps in becoming part of a community that is centered on Christ because that's part of what it means to follow Jesus. It's not just about Jesus and you, but calling us in community together. And if not here at Pilgrim, we'd love to get you connected with a church somewhere that is following him. So, Lord, we thank you this Easter for this opportunity we have to remember and to celebrate who you are. And this message of Peter, this kerygma, this declaration again of the story of your life, death, and resurrection calls to us. And, Lord, may this church be a place where whether it's intellectual questioning, whether it's experiential things, whether it's experience of justice and good works, However the kerygma is coming forth, may it come forth in this house in every way as we are sensitive to your spirit at work in the world and here in South Vancouver. And Lord, I pray that this Sunday someone would have taken that step and we can celebrate with them their new life in you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen and amen.